Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, August the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, I discussed with Susan McKay and Matthew O'Toole the current state of play in Northern Ireland as the Brexit deadline approaches. Where does the DUP stand and hasn't made a major strategic mistake? But first, I was joined by Fia Kelly to discuss the City Season News. Fear definitively in silly season now. You got a few good silly season stories over the last few days. Can't be silly season. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's trundling on. You know, the August bank holiday weekend and the week thereafter are generally, apart from Christmas week, the quietest news weeks of the year politically because everybody's away on their holidays. So, so a dramatic leadership heave. I wouldn't quite go for dramatic, and I wouldn't quite go for the word heave. There's something to do with leadership in there around the Labour Party. It's not quite a heave. It's, we don't know what it is. That'll do with this bit time of, year. Bit of, yeah, bit of rumbling uh, in the Labour Party over the last week and a half, has to be said, about the position of Brendan Howland. Um, I think the catalyst for this was, I did see it myself time, I thought it was pretty strange, the Labour Party coming behind the Independent Alliance in a national opinion poll for the Sunday Times. A number of councillors have got jumpy about this and have started to speak out saying it's time for Brendan Howland to go. Um, I suppose people around Howland are saying, well, of course, that's the case because they're facing the local elections next year and, of course, they're nervous. But they do have a point, I would think, in that, you know, if you're behind the Independent Alliance and languishing in the polls in Dublin, where you're traditionally supposed to be strong and where you would want to pick up seats in the next general election, there certainly is cause for concern. Now, nothing kind of significant has happened yet. We've had but five councillors now come out, five out of 50, come out and say that Brendan Helen has to go. Are they all Alan, Alan Kelly supporters? Howland's people are saying they are. Um, but then to counter that, there was a letter uh, signed by 16 councillors last Saturday, I think, saying that now is not the time for leadership change. But the key thing in all of this is the Parliamentary Party are showing absolutely no sign of doing anything about this whatsoever. And I think the councillors need them to do something in What's order the for constitutional change. position? Like, how, how would one mount it's a real It's very difficult change? to get rid of a Labour Party leader. You have to table a motion at the Central Council of the Party, which is basically a 50-strong uh, organisation with various representatives from constituencies, etc. And you have to get a two-thirds majority at that body to remove the leader. So the people who are agitating against Helen at the moment see that that is an impossibility. They see that the Parliamentary Party are not going to do anything about it. There's clearly one person in the Parliamentary Party who would like a change of leader, but it's not quite clear if Alan Kelly has anything to do with this. I'm not convinced that he does. I think, you know, if you're a grand political strategist, the time to launch a heave is certainly not the August Bank holiday weekend. It isn't political killing season after all. Um, so I think it's more of a thing that's grown from the councillors. The latest, so it's a legitimate thing, really, because they, they, I mean, they are in a terrible oh, it state. Is, it is a legitimate and thing. And I think yeah. people from around Brendan Helen are saying, oh, there's nothing to this. Um, I don't quite think so. You know, I've been speaking to a couple of councillors myself who haven't gone on the record yet, who are not unhappy that this is now happening. And this is now a topic for discussion. They think that the parliamentary party are being too blinkered in their approach. The latest development on it is is that one of the councillors is organ- trying to organise a letter, basically calling on Howland to step aside. And the hope is that 
25 or more of the 50 councillors will sign this letter. They will then submit it to the voluble Dermot Lacey, who is well known to letters, uh, readers of the letters page of the Irish Times. Indeed, who is the, rarely far, indeed, far away from the letters he, page. He is a chair of the Labour councillors organisation and then he would go to Howland and say, these councillors, be they 20, be they 25, whatever, want to meet with you and they would tell him to his face that he has to stand down and they think in that situation he would have to go. I think myself that... Brendan Howell himself would have to decide that he his time is up. There's no other real way of, of pushing him out. And there's no sign of that happening yet. The parliamentary party believe that this is a distraction and there's nobody yet within the party who wants to take Howland out. In saying that, a couple of former members I spoke to in recent days uh, agree with the councillors. They think something has to change, that it's just gone too far now the party is, needs to survive. Is, is the reality is that there's a majority, certainly in the parliamentary party and in the um, the, the fifty strong body which you referred, which, whatever it may think of Brendan Howland's performance, uh, would view with horror the arrival of Alan Kelly, who seems to be the the, the sole candidate, sole yeah, rival candidate. The, the great hope amongst many within the party, not just the parliamentary party, the wider party, ha- would be that Howland would lead the party into a general election. They would win a couple of extra seats. Aon O'Reardon would take a seat in Dublin Bay North. Jed Nash would regain his seat in Loud. Then you would have a leadership contest at which Kelly would be against Aon O'Reardon and Jed Nash or possibly one of those two and that those two would defeat Kelly. I think, and that is, that is a concern that people have uh, who would like a change of leadership that that is basically stymieing anything happening right. now that the party has already made up its mind they don't want Kelly and therefore their desire to stop Kelly is overriding everything else right. Speaking of the Independent Alliance Shane Ross has had a terrific week Yes indeed uh, he was at the homecoming for He won a silver medal team. He won the, a silver medal yeah. I saw someone mention on Twitter that it was the best sporting achievement of an Irish politician since Charlie Hawley won the Tour de France um, but yeah Ro- Shane Ross then quite theatrically pulled 1.5 million from his that back pocket. Was, uh, there, there, there was something, that, that, that piece of video is going to be replayed again yeah. and again and again. Over. It was revolting. It was There was something about it. He shouted one and a half million and these amateur hockey players who've put their lives on hold to get this great achievement, they kind of gasped with astonishment and joy and then he kind of pulled it back. Yeah, it was I, just unbelievable. People I was, should watch it if they haven't seen it. I was watching the six o'clock news that evening in the company of other people and when this piece of footage was actually played someone you know shout at the television in, in colourful terms at what they thought of Shane Ross and I think you know that would have been shared by a lot of people there was a definite sense that the manner in which he spoke even the words were weighted and you know that he was taking advantage of the moment and that 1.5 million is it really hill of beans when it comes down to it if it exists there's no, and it, it does 1.5 million for the hockey team the way he constructed the sentence they thought the way he constructed the sentence in fairness to them, it seems to be some sort of new money that, that some dividend of 12 million has come back to the department, of which 1.5 million is going towards high performance sports and preparation for limits, of which we don't yet know the proportion is going towards hockey. So I think it may have backfired on Shane Ross somewhat that if he thought he was delivering munificence to the hockey players and the, he would bask in the reflected glory, that did, certainly didn't happen. Yeah. It's perhaps maybe up there with the time he welcomed home the Six Nations team and then tweeted a picture of himself with Rob Kearney and said it was Dave Kearney. I could almost accept that even more. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was fine. That was a bit silly. But, yeah, the, the, this thing was, but also, I mean, this is on top of the, the famed Granny Grant, which has had, you know, people around the country rolling around in the aisles, including our, you know, not, not normally easily tickled economics uh, commentator Cliff Taylor, who pointed out how absurd the bloody thing was. <laughs> 
thinking, oh yeah, Cliff was one of the people over the weekend who pointed to the absurdity of this payment. I think Vincent O'Toole did so yesterday as well, said it was returning to the politics of the Bertie era. Yeah, Ross's granny grant, it's not the first time he's proposed it. Um, he did, I think, table it in last year's budgetary process or the year before us. Uh, to the hilarity of many people in the Department of Finance who couldn't believe what this was. Uh, they kind of, they thought they had buried it and it was never to return again, although the Independence Alliance went into me, Pascal Donahue, a week or two ago, and Shane Ross tabled this grant. I think the thing about Ross is it points to his ultimate weakness is that he gets so focused with one particular issue, he cannot see that it's not a, f- a, f- a flyer. He cannot see why people are joking about it. He cannot see... Why but seriously, on that, could you not just sit down for 10 minutes, have a conversation with any objective human being and go through the but ramifications see, he, 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 he doesn't see that. He doesn't talk to other people, really. He doesn't take advice. Like, if you talk to people around government, he very much sees himself as a sole trader. And, like, it's almost obsessive, the manner, the, the extent to which, he, or the distance which he takes that. Like, he drives himself around. He doesn't really choose a ministerial driver. He doesn't want to spend time, probably, in the car with other people. He doesn't. He advi- he leans heavily on one advisor. Sometimes he tells the rest of the advisors they can't come to press conferences with him. He doesn't listen to other people. He doesn't get collective decision making. He doesn't get collective pooling of knowledge. That's why he doesn't really fit into a cabinet. He doesn't get why you know judges are appointed the way they are. And I think the, the most absurd uh, episode of the whole Granny Grant fiasco, uh, for really rolling out the punches here, was um, his own column in the Sunday Independent at the weekend. It was just. It was bonkers. It was, you know, Ross railing against the insiders of official Ireland who were trying to do down his his great granny grand The swamp. Is this, the swamp. He's draining the swamp. When you, really, like, you know, he doesn't quite get that. He's been a minister in the cabinet for two years and he's still railing against insiders in official Ireland. It was just, I thought it was quite beyond parody. Thanks for that, Fix. Stick with us. Fix going to be with us as well. We'll be joined by Susan McKay and Matthew O'Toole. Now, a little over a week ago, the former leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, Peter Robinson, told an audience at the McGill Summer School that he believed unionists should start preparing for the possibility, at least, of Irish unification. Peter Robinson said that he didn't think Northern Ireland would want to leave the UK, but that was no reason not to prepare for that eventuality. He received a pretty ferocious response from his former party members and also other unionist parties in the North. But since then, there's been more discussion on this issue. And Matthew O'Toole, who is uh, who was chief press officer for Europe, European and economic affairs in the British Prime Minister's office from September 2015 to August 2017. He wrote a piece for the Irish Times this week saying that unionists, and I quote, didn't know how good they had it before Brexit, arguing that the DUP has made a serious strategic miscalculation in terms of its support for Brexit and also in doubling down on culture war issues in Northern Ireland when it had actually won the core argument years ago. I was joined by Matthew and also by Susan McKay, who had an article in the newspaper last weekend about what people on the ground in Northern Ireland are saying about these issues right now. Matthew, your very interesting piece today argues essentially that unionists, or the DUP in particular, just didn't know what they had before Brexit and now they're in risk of throwing it all away. Yeah, I think, Hugh, the point I was really trying to make is that I think from the perspective of unionists, there are really two um, battles, if you like, two debates. One is about... um, the cultural landscape in Northern Ireland and unionism or the you know, unionist culture's place in that landscape. And then there's the slightly more, um, uh, and then there's the constitutional debate and, and the economic arguments connected to it about whether Northern Ireland is in the United Kingdom. Uh, I think what's becoming clear is that the, the, the battle over 
the Britishness of Northern Ireland or the Ulster Britishness of Northern Ireland or how that manifests itself is actually a different um, battle to whether Northern Ireland is in the United Kingdom. They're connected clearly and one impacts upon the other, um, but they're not quite the same thing. And I think what I argue in the piece is that um, the DUP has sort of accentuated one and, in, and, and almost can't help itself accentuating one, but that comes at the risk of losing the other. Why do you think it can't help itself doing that? And, you know, listening to you there, it brings to mind Arlene Foster's crocodile comment um, a few months ago. Why, is, is, is it just innate to, the, to that, that political movement that it needs to um, be based around the notion of the threat within? Yes, I think so, to, to an extent. I mean, Susan, who's um, written very authoritatively about this, was probably in a better place to answer that than me, but I think it probably is. I also think, um, in part, um, a mirror or obverse instinct is familiar to um, the Republican community in Northern Ireland, though it's, it's, it's not quite the same. But I think there's a... I think... I live in London now, but I always keep an eye on what happens at home, one of the, the things that I sense is that the debate over um, tribal or communal um, deliverance, if you like, in the North is becoming slightly decoupled from the constitutional debate. As I said, they are connected. But um, to specifically answer your question, I think um, you know, the DUP is um, both a um, you know, party that advocates union with Britain, but is also a a tribal loyalist unionist party and they, they want to fight battles about things like the you know, the presence of the flag and orange marches and you know against the Irish language and that satisfies a kind of loyalist aid but um, that it doesn't necessarily uh, help persuade the moderate nationalists and the and, and, and the centrists really and I think there's a growing center in Northern Ireland who are may or may not vote for parties like Alliance or Green um, uh, or they may not vote at all, but I think they are kind of constitutionally agnostic, or um, you know they have an attachment to the United Kingdom, but perhaps not to capital unionism and its culture of expression. So I think um, the DUP, because they sort of need to satisfy this, as I say, urge to um, kind of a loyalist urge, I suppose. To um, and I don't want to be, I, I don't mean to demean that community with that description, because I think there's a say the mirror on the Republican side, but I. As I said, I think there's a bit of a tension between the constitutional battle and the tribal one. And one of the things that strikes me about that, Susan, if you accept um, Matthew's thesis, that there is a, that there is a, a, a growing centre, perhaps a growing moderate centre, is that there's a thing, lots of, our, lots of our listeners may have watched the documentary about John Hume, which was on RTE television last night, and there was a sense that perhaps, to some extent, the original sin here was the process onward from the Good Friday Agreement, and particularly then the St. Andrew's Agreement, that marginalised those centre parties and gave more power to bring them into the fold, I suppose, to um, the more the more extremes, i.e., i.e., Sinn Fein and the DUP. So there's a there's a deep paradox here. Then isn't there? If there's a if there's a growing centre, but the political representation is more extreme than it was ten or twelve years ago. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree um, very much with what with what Matthew is saying, and I think that there there is a growing centre, but unfortunately, the DUP just seems to be sort of staking everything on the sectarian card at this stage. You know, they're fighting all kinds of old battles over flags, and you know, they're defending indefensible sort of um, use of graffiti and flags and so on. They're they're allowing things to happen that that shouldn't be allowed to happen in terms of risky sectarianising of, of things in the North at the moment. But also, I think that one of the things that's, you know, if you look at the moment, for example, Ian Paisley Jr. is in utter disgrace with British Parliament, and you would think that that ought to be quite a shameful thing for the DUP. But instead, his constituents and other DUP representatives are rallying around him. And it really is getting to the stage where it's just but a growing centre. People are looking towards the Republic. You know, they're looking at the fact that there's now single-sex marriage in the Republic. They're looking at the fact that women have uh, the right to choose abortion if they need to. Um, they're looking at the fact that, you know, the Taoiseach and the um, Minister for Foreign Affairs are talking quite comfortably about the notion of a united Ireland. So there's a lot of very unsettling stuff going on, but the DUP just seems to be clinging to the deal it has with uh, Theresa May and uh, wrapping the the Union Jack around it and brazening it out. Some of the language that is being used by unionists, like for example Sammy Wilson, you know, he's he's started using the no surrender term quite frequently now. He said that Theresa May should just tell the EU no surrender, and he's saying the same about in Paisley's situation, and he's talking about you know, this when in the row that he's currently having with Peter Robinson about whether or not uh, unionists should be preparing themselves uh, for a border poll or for a debate about a border poll at any rate. He's saying that we should just take a no-surrender stand and tell them where to go. You know, it's it's a very militant, very short-sighted, very anti-intellectual anti position. Fia, what, what's your perspective on this? Um, the, Susan mentioned this really quite, I think, fundamental tectonic plates shifting when you have an Irish government. We had yesterday, we had the Minister for Health saying that uh, that women in Northern Ireland would be able to access uh, abortion services when they become available following legislation now that the Eighth, the Eighth Amendment is gone. Um, that's a, it's a very different kind of presentation of the relationship between the two, uh, the two parts of the island from... 45 years ago when you had the contraceptive train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a complete reversal where, you know, the South is liber- socially liberal. You know, the, what Simon Harris said last night about, you know, we will open up our abortion regime when it is in place to people from the North. It is supposed this, it's it's kind of another manifestation of the, I suppose, confident outward approach that this government tries to project that, they, you know, they see themselves as, you know, not even in, the centre of European liberalism now, but somewhat to the fore of it since we've had the referendum. And I think it, it is also curious in that, as Susan said, we have the Taoiseach and the Minister of Foreign Affairs talking about a united Ireland, but they're still doing it in a quite guarded way, you know, within my lifetime or political lifetime, you know, Leo Varadkar says now is not the time, but it's a, it's something in future, you know, what, I, don't, I don't think I'll, I'll ever forget that phrase he used when in last December, when the kind of preliminary agreement on Brexit was uh, was announced, and he, you know, said we'll never leave Northern Nationals behind again, and we've now got to the point where we have the Fianna Fáil leader lecturing the Taoiseach and the government on their poor relations with the unionist community in the north, and more needs to be done to reach out to unionism. I don't necessarily think that it's deliberately antagonistic. 
uh, on behalf of the government, I think it's, you know, they more see this as an acknowledgement of a fact that is now on the ground and it would be remiss of them not to talk about mm. it. I don't think they're deliberately going out to poke Sammy Wilson in the eye. Uh, although, you know, unionism now sees f- particularly the Minister for Foreign Affairs is more green than his counterparts. You know, you'll often hear people saying, oh, well, Charlie Flanagan was there. It wasn't this bad. Uh, but I think, you know, Varadkar and Coveney more see themselves as speaking to a younger generation who see this as a possibility, if not a probability, and they have to reflect that. And I think it doesn't harm them as well because there's an electoral benefit to it, but I don't think it's deliberately destabilising of unionism. But, Matthew, it, if it's a possibility, it's a pretty remote possibility right now in 2018, isn't it? If Even if there were a border poll, and the process by which a border poll might take place in the next two, three or four years is at the discretion of the, uh, of the, of the Secretary of State in Northern Ireland on the basis that uh, he or she thinks that there is some justification because of a shift in opinion. No opinion polls show any likelihood of a, of a, of a majority for, um, for unification in Northern Ireland, do they? Um, uh, and you're right to say there, I don't think there's ever been a, uh, a sort of independently accredited poll that's ever shown a majority in the North for um, unification. There have been a couple of polls that have shown a much shallower majority for the Union. Um, uh, there was one done, for example, by Lord Ashcroft, um, uh, who did a lot of polling around Brexit and is a former funder of the Tory party, um, that showed a really quite a narrow, I think it was about maybe 43, 44% for unification. And I think you're right that um, there is, I mean, in the immediate term, for a variety of reasons, um, there isn't an immediate prospect of a border poll. I mean, from my perspective, I'm I'm sure lots of others, I don't think, not only could there not be one very soon, I don't think there should be one very soon. I think from the perspective of the people who want to advocate for it, be they in the north or the south, clearly a huge amount needs to be done in terms of thinking through the, like, you know, the, the myriad historical, social, cultural, economic implications of it and completely starting a completely new kind of conversation about what a unified, um, unitary Irish state would look like and starting to answer all the questions that people have. Um, in a weird way, that might not might not be a bad thing for Northern Ireland, whatever the long-term constitutional future. And I suppose the obverse is true of people um, who want to, you know, maintain the union, which is... Um, one thing I've, I suppose I've always thought, I mean, personally, you know, and I've learned some of it from my own biography, that um, part of the reason why we're in the difficulties we are with Brexit and with the border is that there was um, a, a complete misreading and misunderstanding of the position of moderate nationalism and also the centre in Northern Ireland, but particularly that the, the kind of moderate um moderate constitutional nationalism, which obviously isn't represented at all in Westminster anymore. And I think one of the reasons why in West, you know, obviously I I worked in it for a long time and tried to make the case, but part of the reason why it was completely misunderstood about the impact of of Brexit on that um, cohort of people is that I think for a lot of moderate nationalists in Northern Ireland, and I mentioned this in my piece, they had accepted partition as a reality and they had accepted partition in part because of, you mentioned John Hume earlier on, because of a, a sort of moral and intellectual case that Hume made about membership of the European Union. I don't think it was ever understood the extent to which moderate northern nationalists internalised that argument. I also think it's misunderstood a lot by unionists, probably by people in both London and Dublin, the extent to which for a lot of moderate nationalists, actually, 
Um, the question of whether you're in the United Kingdom is not is quite exactly the same thing as disliking a border. It's possible to dislike the border on the island of Ireland, find it absurd and objectionable, but at the same time not have that intense an objection to Northern Ireland being in the United Kingdom. That might seem like a contradiction, but I think that's it's that ambivalence that drives a lot of um, moderate constitutional Northern nationalism. And unionism, I think, completely failed to see how re-implanting the border in the minds of nationalists who had made an intellectual and moral choice to accept partition on the basis of that border that they find inherently absurd and objectionable being smudged in their minds and is being re-implanted in their minds. And I think no one's really come up with a policy response yet, certainly not in London and certainly not um, and certainly not among unionists in the north. And, and I think that's the that's part of the the, the the, the massive strategic error they've made because they didn't realise the strength of their position with the moderate nationalists, the kind of SDLP voter, if you like, but even possibly some people who would for Sinn Féin, believe it or not, probably fall into that group. And I just want one, one final point to go back to what Fiek said, which is you know, some of the streams in, of, of, of Irish history are really um, are fascinating how the way they've, they've, they've kind of rejoined. I do think that um, something that happened has happened over the last two decades in, in, in the Republic of Ireland, or uh, as the state prefers to call itself, even when talking about the context of the island, just Ireland. I think that the southern state had become a more, within the context of its European Union membership, had become a, in the, in the context of Good Friday, had frankly internalised partition. And in a way, some people might think that's there was a healthy thing to that. It was able to psychologically separate itself from the past and the north. It had clarified its obligations. And um, and that was disrupted. So a very modern Fine Gael Taoiseach, like Leo Varadkar, who was very comfortable saying, talking about Ireland and Northern Ireland as distinct entities, stood on a platform in December and sounded quite like Jack Lynch in 1970, whatever it was, talking about not leaving behind Northern nationalists. And I think, so as well as the revolutionising thing, you know, revolutionising the position for the moderate Northern nationalists, I think Brexit has, in a strange way, radicalised um, very soft southern nationalists who had forgotten they were nationalists at all. Yes, I suppose because there's been a process over the last well, 20, 20 years or so, Susan, that you know the fact that you don't have British soldiers pointing machine guns at you when you cross the border at Ochnacloy anymore and a range of other things, including you know Irish politicians regularly in Belfast and to some extent vice versa, means that par- you know partition was no, was no longer the running sore which it had been for Irish nationalism for, for, for 70 or 80 years. I, I, I did want to ask you one thing about this, this division which Matthew makes between the, the, the political project and the resistance to it, the political project of you Unification and the resistance to it, and the 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 culture wars, if I may put them that way, because one of the things that strikes me looking at this depiction of the hardening stance of the DUP is it reminds me of things that are happening in other parts of the world around things like you know white anxiety in the United States about uh, about losing a losing majority, fear of demographic change in the UK driving certain kinds of, of certain kinds of Brexit votes. Um, is there? Is there a, a, a legitimate economic anxiety here? Because I was listening, to, I was reading rather your piece on Saturday, and you were you were pointing to the fact that there's still huge uh, economic imbalance in Northern Ireland between west of the ban and east of the ban. So there is. What, what's your read of how does economics fit into this at all? Is east of the ban basically? form part of what we might call a kind of almost a kind of a single border territory of the most disadvantaged parts of the island of Ireland, of Donegal, Tyrone, Fermanagh, Monaghan, Cavan. Do they share the same problems and is does the east still remain the prosperous part? 
Well, to a great extent that is true, and people can look at the Northern Ireland statistical map on that. It's recently been been published, and it is really interesting because you can see these clusters of extreme disadvantage on the western parts of the border. I mean, the border region on both sides of it has been economically disadvantaged since partition, and despite massive investments of money by the EU, that has continued to be the case. It is marginal. It's on the outer edge of both jurisdictions. But I think just in connection with what uh, Matthew was saying there, I thought there was a really, really good uh, comment that a man made that I quoted in my piece on Saturday. I met him at a meeting uh, here in Derry, where I am at the moment, where he said, um, there was a period I felt I could be comfortably Irish in this town and live beside someone who was comfortably British. Brexit has already raised territorial issues. And he was basically saying that uh, a border poll would further raise the territorial issue. And he was saying these things make it harder, they unsettle us. And I think that in the context of both economics and identity, Brexit has already caused a lot of damage and uh, you know a border poll does have the have the you know the delicate balance that was established by the Good Friday Agreement was already sort of broken up quite a bit by what the, the damage that the DUP succeeded in having done during the St Andrews Agreement but um, you know just even to look at things are changing um, 56% of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain in Europe uh, when the Brexit poll was actually held. A recent reliable survey has found that that's now closer to 70%. It's actually 69%. So things are changing quite dramatically uh, in terms of these issues. And uh, we don't know what's happening with Brexit. But if it does turn out, I think one of the things that's dawning on all of the other parties to this is that while the DUP said that they didn't want a border, they actually do. They would be perfectly comfortable with a border which secures them in their little um, comfort zone. And it's becoming more and more apparent that they would find that a lot more tolerable than the idea of even having to discuss uh, better cooperation cross-border with the Republic in the event of of Brexit. So, you know, there's there's such a gap between what the DUP is willing to say about its intentions and what its intentions actually are. I mean, you know, Peter Robinson has kind of reinvented himself now as a kind of statesman-like figure uh, proposing quite sensible sounding discussions. But, you know, you have to remember that Peter Robinson was the person who at one stage went out and was talking about putting a fence along the border and, you know, who did the invasion of Clontibret all those years ago. You know, it's easy for a unionist leader who's out of office to sound sensible, but when they're in office, they, they seem to feel that they've got to to play to the, to the hard line, even when it's to the disadvantage of their people. It's undoubtedly disadvantageous to, say, border farmers from the unionist community uh, to have a hard Brexit, and yet that is what is is lying, apparently lying ahead. Right. Um, Fia, listening to what Susan had to say there, one of the things that strikes me about Peter Robinson, who spoke, he's spoken on a couple of occasions now, first I think in Queens and then at the McGill Summer School in Donegal, and Susan makes the point that he wasn't able to do that, or chose not to do that, perhaps, when, when he was leader. When we looked at what happened with Arlene Foster when she thought she had a deal a few months ago with Sinn Féin to get the Assembly back up and running and her grassroots turned on her and she had to, she had to you know, withdraw, does that not show that Peter Robinson was right in political terms, that he wasn't, wouldn't be able to bring his party with him had he so wished? I imagine so. It would be incredibly difficult, as Susan said, to see Peter Robinson, where he's still leader of the DUP, 
making the comments and making the speeches he has made in recent months about, you know, even theoretically preparing for a border poll. And he was quite specific, saying, I'm not talking about preparing for United Ireland, I'm talking about preparing for a border poll and how we may approach that and how we may deal with it. I thought the interesting thing about what he said was, as Susan said, he was talking a lot of sense. And Matthew himself alluded to this a few minutes ago in his contribution that, you know, if we are in a situation now where people believe that, well, it's not a probability, it is a distant possibility, that the preparations for such an eventuality really should begin in Dublin and as well as anywhere else. And, you know, we haven't had much talk from parties in Dublin who in name aspire to United Ireland about what that would look like you know we so have no roadmap there no picture no of a unified Ireland nothing there's, there's nothing yet now the funny thing was Fianna Fáil I think last year or the year before said that they were working on one and are still supposed to be working on a roadmap to United Ireland which sketches out seems to answer some of those details okay like you know would the storm assembly still be in place in a United Ireland yes it would how would we deal with absorbing the uh, NHS into the HSC all these types of questions and I think you know it, I think Brexit and the the toxicity around Brexit has paused that. I think those conversations were probably starting to happen until Brexit is really nosedive um, relations between Dublin, the DUP, Dublin, London uh, into a a trough. And I think what would be interesting to see, and it, it kind of struck me on foot of Mary Lou's McDonald's vote fast a week or two ago about a border poll, that if we get through this, uh, stage over the next two or three years if we get to a Brexit settlement if we get to the Stormont Assembly being back up and running do those, do those conversations then happen as Peter Robinson envisaged do the southern parties say okay now is the time when we need to start sketching out what this may look like to reassure the unionist community to give them a vision of where we see the island going over the next what 50, 60, 70, 80 years and I think that's going to be the interesting thing once Brexit is settled because there was a kind of tentative you know, inching up to that line by both Fianna Fáil in saying it and Fine Gael by Leo Varadkar rebranding the party as Fine Gael, a United Ireland party. So does that return, does that conversation come back around once Brexit's set? But, but is that, Matthew, in response to that, is that not very dependent on the type of Brexit that takes place? It, it is, um, you know, a soft Brexit that, you know, for, if, for the sake of argument, <laughs> we're a long way from this, if for the sake of argument the UK had a Norway plus customs union arrangement um, that it meant for all intents and purposes, the border would be exactly as it is now. Um, then it would be, you know, clearly that would be, things wouldn't be disrupted in the same way. However, um, I would say that in one sense, there's something has happened. I, I can't have been let out of the bag a little bit in terms of um what I talked about earlier on, kind of soft nationalism, but also liberal centrism in Northern Ireland. I think the liberal centre, whether they're voting for Alliance, Green, whoever is growing, or they're just unaligned, whether they're on the left or the right, they're unaligned. They're in, and so they're in the tribal middle and, and, the, and, and also the soft nationalists. Um, uh, that, you know, that comfort with Northern Ireland and partitions disrupted to a point. Um, but I was going to one other quick thing, I think, about... Um, about the you know, about the, the the border point is really that um, yeah, I mentioned earlier on you know, Dublin the, the conversation changing in both parts of the island. I think there are someone mentioned earlier on the, the obvious thing that's happening um, in the Republic: liberal progressive moves on equal marriage and on abortion, um, economic growth that's four times faster than in the North. 
what you're seeing is basically the inverse of what happened. You, the practical, pragmatic arguments that, that existed in 1924, partition for the Northern Ireland remaining in the Union, and you know, the economic strength in Belfast, the biggest city, you know, 80% of industrial output in the, in the island, and also um, you know, fear of being a clerical state. In a sense, both of those things have been reversed, and obviously the, the risk for, for unionism is that the unionism in the UK and Northern Ireland have never quite been the same thing and that's been true for moderate nationalists. I, I alluded to this earlier on. You can see this from the number of moderate nationalists who are attached to things like the, the NHS. Um, uh, and But at the minute, the DUP are doing a really good job of libeling the United Kingdom among the moderate nationalists and even to an extent some of those liberal centrists. Um, yeah, they may, could, their future may lie in the South. Could I just uh, agree with both? I mean, both Matthew and Fake have referred to the NHS. That's hugely important. I mean, <clears throat> anybody in the North who has relatives who are elderly or, or poorly knows how important the NHS is and it's battered and broken and, you know, not nearly as great as it used to be in its heyday, but it's still magnificent compared with what we have in the Republic. Um, but an interesting thing in relation to what um, we've been talking about, about the breaking down of the border and, and what Matthew's referring to as the Liberal Centre, one of the really interesting things that happened during the repeal campaign was that there was a lot of support given to feminists in the South by feminists feminists from the north and I've been at a couple of, of demos in the north since where I've seen a lot of people from feminists and, and their supporters from the republic and there is a whole sort of hashtag the north is next and that kind of thing going on so in some ways I think you know uh, Fiek was talking earlier about the need for the republic to start actually playing a part in preparing for you know just the same as in the north preparing for there to be the possibility of a, of a, of a united Ireland um, that's one of the ways in which it is happening. And it's it saw, liberal centre is a little bit of a misnomer for it, I think, because it's actually quite at the radical edge of politics. I think that, you know, feminism is, is actually quite a resurgent force in Ireland, North and South at the moment. And that will play a part in breaking down the border. I think that's right, Susan. I was just kind of, so I was going to jump in with, with, with one additional comment because I agree with what Susan just said. She put it well. Um, but I would add a point about the realignment of um, you know, social and political relations on the island. In addition to you know, shared you know, femi feminists and, and, and people and progressives on both sides of the border feeling, feeling passionate common calls with one another, and um, particularly in the kind of regressive you know, situation we have in the North. And the, the other thing you saw... Um, was uh, conservatives from the north, not just old line Catholic rural conservatives, but uh, Protestant evangelicals who are presumably naturally unionists, even some DUP, I think even a couple of DUP um, uh, representatives campaigning online and even campaigning in person in, you know, for, a, for a new vote in the 8th referendum. So in a weird way, this kind of an all-island civic society isn't just a preserve of... Um, nationalists and the radical centre. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's an interesting development. It's one that the DUP aren't completely in control of, so they need to be very careful. I guess it's kind of fascinating the idea of a new conservative alliance of, of Protestant, Northern Protestant evangelicals and um, and Irish Catholic conservatives. For you. Yeah, well, that that was the, <laughs> that'd be quite a party. I mean, Max is right that that did happen during the referendum. I think there was some coverage yeah. of it that people crossed the border to canvas on both sides of the argument during the referendum. I think what we're seeing, you know, we're talking about, you know social, uh, you know, ties on both sides, economic, you know, prosperity in the South versus sluggishness in the North. But I, I think that the interesting thing about, you know, the weaving together of basically interests 
across the board. It goes back to that old traditional nationalist post-partition view that the way you achieve unity is through, you know, slightly concrete means if I can use it that way. So cooperation on various issues across the border. Once you bring the societies into line, then the constitutional question will perhaps be detoxified. Obviously, that changed from the troubles. But I think, you know, are we reverting back to that? You know, are we reverting back to kind of uniformity across the border. I think the NHS point that Susan makes is quite valid. If you talk to people, both in Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil, who aspire to unity, they recognise that. And they recognise that health, the health service in the South will have to be brought radically up to scratch in order to convince people in the North that unity is a good thing. And that's why I think if Sinn Féin gets into government, you will see them make a big play for the health system. Susan, can I make one, la- one, one last question to you? And it's partly as a kind of devil's advocate, because I think perhaps for my whole adult life, I can remember having conversations with people who said uh, there, there, is a, there is a radical progressive um, centre in Northern Ireland and it needs to come to the fore more and create a kind of a post-sectarian politics. And there have been various manifestations of attempts to do that, which we're familiar with over, the, over, over several decades. And in the end, electorally at least, they've come to, to naught. And in your, your piece on Saturday, you talked to various members of civic society, many of whom still represent those kinds of impulses. But what about the argument that the post-Good Friday settlement privileges the rigidities of the sectarian divide and makes it very difficult for those to emerge, whatever about their effect in civic society, for them to emerge actually as, as political electoral blocks? Yeah, I mean, we saw uh, David Irvine of the Progressive Unionist Party back during the era of the Good Friday Agreement who made a very valiant bid to kind of get working class uh, Protestants to to see that they had common cause with working class Catholics and and to try to to break that down into some sort of political block. But you know the PUP was crushed by uh, the DUP, and we've already discussed how the the polarisation which has occurred means that you know there are a lot of. Protestants who talk progressively and who grumble about the DUP and who aren't actually uh, wedded to sectarian politics in a way, but they will vote for the DUP because they sense, they feel that they, they believe, they see that the alternative is to vote Sinn Féin and they're not culturally going to do that. So people are kind of trapped, I think, in the sectarian blocks here at the moment and people feel that there's no point in voting for the other parties because it just means that you're going to be excluded from power. So that is a very worrying situation and I think that it's going to take quite a long time for that to be broken down in any meaningful way. You know, I mean, the SDLP and the Ulster Unionist Party have pretty much become irrelevant to politics now. So even though sometimes their their spokespersons say things that appeal to a lot of people here, the people to whom those appeal will probably still go out and vote for the DUP or, or vote for Sinn Féin. So it is a very rigid kind of politics here at the moment, and it's not easy to be hopeful that that is going to change anytime soon. Susan and Matthew, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to Fiac, Matthew and Susan for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan and engineer JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are very welcome and you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening.